this? Are you guys? I'd like to welcome Dr. Uh, Tishman. Luckily, he'll survive, even though I'm killing all you guys with the pole everywhere. <laughs> you all know him, I believe, uh, surgical ICU director, leader in critical care education, nationally, internationally, and mostly here. Not mostly. Apparently, <laughs> <laughs> everywhere else but here. Okay, so hopefully you got this. We're going to do a quick test to see if this whole thing works. <laughs> but, oh, look at that. We already got people answering it. So if you have it, you can still pull it. There you go. I did make it anonymous. Like, well, I, I, maybe I should have. So I can sign out who's putting in E. <laughs> <laughs> um, you can do both, but you can get the app in the app store. Um, or you can go to pull it or all right, it seems like a lot of people are doing this. This is great, awesome. All right, let's go on with the talk. <laughs> okay, we're gonna, oh, we're gonna talk about hemorrhoid shock, not music from the 60s and 70s. All right, so my short answer, if you have to leave, is patient in hemorrhoid shock, fix the patient, okay? That's the short version. Stop the bleeding, give them blood. Okay, we're done. So, trauma case. <laughs> 32 year old, unrestrained driver, motor vehicle accident. Tachycardic hypotensive, just did an adrenaline, tender left up the quadrant, deformity of the right thigh. This patient in shock? I have a question about yes. that. Yes. Yeah, he's a talk, too. This is going to be multi communicative. Uh, no, we don't, need, we don't need to do that. Alright, so what's the definition of shock? Anyone want to throw out a definition of shock? Hypotensive. Okay. And, oh, that'll be the result. But let me describe, this is actually sort of the circuitry system that results in inadequate organ fusion to show up to me. And actually, I would focus on the tissue consciousness. You can get great perfusion, but if your PO2 is you're not going to get oxygen to the tissue, and you're going to be in shock. So you think about trying to get oxygen to the tissue, the tissue we use, that should be the key end of the day. We've got to focus on Causes of shock and trauma? Hammer, 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 hammer. Okay. Uh, and then you get other stuff, but we're not going to talk about that. Cardiogenic, if not, potentially with neurogenic shock. Alright. But it's important to think about, if you have hemorrhagic shock, ischemia, infusion, there's a whole lot of other stuff that goes on. There's a inflammatory cascade going on. And I'm going to go through every single one of these. Um, but it's important to keep in mind that there is an inflammatory response that leads to what has been termed traumatic shock. So when do people die from trauma? This is the classic trimodal distribution of death in front of people. That's probably not true. But you got these people that immediately die from stuff that probably can't fix. You got these people that are dying within hours. And then you got these late deaths. And it seems like you don't have much of these other deaths. This is a paper that came out a couple years ago. Looking at when people died there, hypotensive, and go to the laparotomy. They die when they die within first day. It goes with details, actually. Those are the people that Because for the most part, outside of TBI, the people who make it to the ICU from trauma, they'll survive. So you don't get many of like that. So what I hope to do um, is talk a little about the severity of shock, fluid resuscitation, types of fluids, and timing of the fluid resuscitation, stopping the hemorrhage, and endpoints of resuscitation. So severity of shock. Question. What's the best test for severity of shock? Hopefully it's working. Not working? Ah, there we go. Somebody's got it. Uh oh. <laughs> yeah, you can change your answer. You can one, you can clear it and start another one. I'm just putting a timer on this. Alright, so I see lots of urine output, people changing their answers, you see what people are doing. And keep in mind, you're serotonin, and you're not going to use it. A lot of urine output, lactate, and a few no ideas. Okay. 
So this is kind of a little odd diagram of what happens with the And so you probably got this dropping, and you try to maintain your cardiac output by heart rate, so things just get tachycardic. And at some point, the blood that starts dropping, and it's typically described around blood loss. And then they kind of keep trying to compensate, 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 so they fall off cliff and die. That's the sort of classic sort of thing that we get taught. We take the ELS course, and you see this little table of the classes of shock and core. Less than 15% blood volume, 15, 30, 30, 30%. And as you get to these higher classes of shock, Hypotensive, we get class three, class four, and for the most part, if you're that bad, you typically need an operation to get something done without bleeding, and you need to pull up the nut kernel for all And the other thing that we think about and talk about is how to take the responders to do it. You have to the responders, transfer the time, and If somebody didn't give a little clue to you, now it's totally fine. The patient that you get some fluid to, they think the blood, and they're not doing anything, they're not getting better at all, we all recognize that patient's going to be And ones that are in between are the ones that we often miss. So you kind of get a little better, you kind of and then crap. So we always talk about the chance of responding to these guys. We worry about problems with these, but we let the guard down, and then they make the uh, so that kind of makes sense, and it comes out to like, it used to be about people kind of all But, a lot of this is probably not all true. That patients don't read books, so they do whatever they do, you know, we talked about the classic of patients that they patients don't read books. The book's quite long. Uh, all this stuff doesn't happen. Rating card is really bad. I'm just getting more types of notifications. And I mean, the most important thing is we should have very little special things about the patient who's in front of us that the patient shocks are hardest, expensive, poor cut, whatever it is. We presume they're in trouble, we're going to do that analysis. Which is why we need to do some other things to figure out if it's going to be safe. So there are some confounders that get in the way of this unit in the science that I just showed you. Age plays into it, severity of injuries play into it, and the anatomy of injuries, time lapse. The patient gets through five minutes after being in a car accident two blocks away, they're human dynamic. Presentation is very different than that in the same for time, maybe something done by the medic or not. So that's the thing that we also do with therapy. Chronic condition, obviously, people with elderly, respond to the vital signs that we see may not be beyond what they can have So what do I mean by confidence? Shock, and that's the key thing. So, the number of parameters we can look at. I'll, uh, I'll start with one that was uh, recognized and studied by uh, the uh, surgeon chief of the Stockholm Center, uh, here, uh, 
looking at simply this object saturation. And this is compared to things like urine output, pulse pressure, pulse pressure, was a better picture of the patient having trouble. So these are patients, small group patients, but the patients have normal vital signs. So if you just look at the regular vital signs, they don't have a But the SCBO is low, the SCBO is really low, and those patients actually need more blood and have more blood loss than the patients who get So this is one parameter. You got to turn it in, but you need to get quickly. But it's one thing. They're just telling you about global O2 delivery, which is O2. Base deficit. Another parameter that's been very popular uh, in DHS by looking at biomodic sphere level of uh, elevated base deficit. And the higher the base deficit goes, the correct. Then the lower the blood pressure, the lower the trauma score, the lower the severity, and the lower the so that's not too bad. It could be thrown off by other adversities, uh, alcohol, uh, other things that could change that. So that's seniors who do it. So that kind of lack is really kind of common. It's pretty good. Uh, this is a study from my former colleague in Pittsburgh. Looking at point of care lactate, this is actually lactate measured in patients that are on helicopter. And the multivariate analysis here is all the way that we get. In pre hospital, serum lactate was the best predictor of death, best predictor of need for an emergent operation, and predictor of multivariate. We get it all the time, so it's pretty good for your some of the deficit can be confounded by the reactive lactate level of septic, which is not a one of trauma. Uh, liver isn't working well, uh, so there's a couple things that can screw up the The other kind of framework that's kind of useful up front is predicting the patient's going to need massive confusion. So there are a couple of scores around like the assessment of blood consumption, the C score, you got the revived mass transfusion score, looking at some vital signs, like blood tests, and type of trauma, that so you can put some technologies together. There's a couple of other things that are around like here at the trauma center, you've got this continuous vital sign monitoring system here here, and the Military has a group looking at this compensatory reserve index, which is kind of a device also I pressure figure and figure out if you're about to be confident. So there's some ways to look at patients confident, but for the most part we use Okay, so fluid resuscitation and types of fluids. ATLS for years and years and years had this dogma, which is kind of way to um, of, you know, you gotta give a leader to a black bit of ringers, and then think about getting blood, the latest working out of ATLS is caught up with the fact that blood should be more up front. 
but the goal also has been I'm getting a group that can do to normalize love practice. It's not in the years of the So why did this start? It goes back to Tom Shire back in the 60s, noticing what happens to foolishness in bodies when you eat. So, uh, this is kind of accepting my, my digital argument here. This is a cell, this is a bloodstream, and you've got an interstitium, and so this is a percentage of your body uh, weight uh, in these fluid compartments. So let's say you are bleeding from the blood vessel. What's going to happen is fluid shifts from the interstitium into the blood vessel, fluid shifts from the cells into the interstitium, and then as the cells get ischemic, you get in trouble, and start smelling, you actually have fluid shifting back into the cells. And what Shire has noted is that, oh, the interstitium is losing a lot of fluid. It's kind of all over the place. Cells from the bloodstream. Maybe we need to replenish and also in small studies in animals they show that yeah, you get a whole bunch of uh, rocket ringers on top of giving yourself blood back to and better. Based on that, we started blood education with Christmas. And you guys have come up with it. But in the old days, not that long ago, basically you had about 15 meters of fluid and looked like an Iron Man, and that's not. And there's specific reasons. But one, one is actually if you just uh, put normal saline, LR, other crystalloid into this blood outside of the body, uh, or if you give it to the animals alone, you can actually elicit. And then planet is That's probably not good. This is the work of Peter Reed, and you can see these little ninja in a couple of the objects first. You can get a planetary response just from the way you're doing. The patient's already going to get a planetary response. It's wrong. You can't get a shock and then see you. So that's probably not very good. And this is a, a subsetting of the glue band, so large multi-center trial of combination Giant markers, all that kind of stuff. Uh, but, and it doesn't really matter what, what each of these figures is, but you can see as you get, as the patient's got more fluids, again, it's not really a control for the conservation. The more crystalloid they got, they went from less than 5 to greater than 15 liters, the more multiple organ failure, ARDS, Parkinson's syndromes, everything. It's a play effect with that. And you know, they said this is basically uh, rolled out other things, and this is kind of a good thing. Yeah. fluid, push blood patients is not helpful. What about hypertonic saline? It increases the pressure, full split from the vessels, so, uh, I'm sorry, full split into the vessels, so you're actually utilizing your intracellular fluid and your interstitial fluid. And decrease the cell swelling and hepatitis saline on the research does not cause that kind of thing. So hepatitis saline was a hot topic. So the other point about it would be if you were a medic or you were going to take a supply down to the other shots in Haiti, wherever you need your bag or all of that, it's easier to get more so, uh, and I mentioned this, this group uh, a couple times today, the Resuscitation Outcomes Consortium, which is a multi-center uh, group looking at various treatments for the PDI, MRI shock, and that other part of the rest. But this group did a study of comparing advertising dextrins, because that is a product product, versus Hepatitis saline versus normal saline. In patients who presumably are in shock, and one of the problems with a lot of MRI shock studies in patients is that people are taking the salt as a 90. A lot of people with salt as a 90 are either totally fine or close to being fine, and so that doesn't help them. And then you have to do that study to help people out of their So based on some pretty small studies, uh, the rock group came up with these criteria, which is a less than or equal to 70. If you're systolic is 71 to 90 and you've got cardiac, you're probably going to try to find out if you really don't need it. And compared 
And this is just one bag of the fluid in pre-hospital based on these criteria. And you can see that there's no difference in mortality. There was a little bit of difference early on looking at early mortality of this group. Patients who got hypertonic saline had a little worse early mortality. There was a thought, this is totally forgot thinking about it. Did the hypertonic saline actually really think it was going to go in so you actually get better than the dynamic? But then the, the, the team kind of regarded that. Oh, no, the patient looks a little better. Maybe you're not as worried about it. So the theory of being that this time won't go ahead of the But in the end, you know, it's pre-hospital with this sort of paradigm, at the time saving did not Alright, next question. The term damage control has been used in trauma to describe fall prevention, car safety, fluid resuscitation, operative management. Or calling mismanagement after wrong side surgery. <laughs> Interesting. Oh, lots of operative answers. And you can answer more than one here. Should be like that. Okay. Interesting. Alright, so let's see. Oh, that was all right. Well, that's it. So, upper management, we're going to come back to that. So, the question that comes up is, when do you get blood on the blood clot? And a lot of what we currently do is based on this study, proper study, magnetic randomized optimal platelet plasma ratios study. So, this was a, uh, Prospective, randomized study, uh, based upon the fact that multiple retrospective studies of how much red cells are going to be out of the patients get, and then how they do, suggested that patients who got those things early on, did better than if you waited for them. It's an initial paradigm. If you go back 20 years, this comes in and hammer a shock, makes some red cells, and you get like that. Five minutes of red cells, ten minutes of red cells, and they say, ah, alright, maybe we should just have a Oh no, it's quite a half. It's going to be more opportunity to play it, because we are going to play it high So the retrospective studies suggest that if you do this early, they do better. And then if you look at those studies too, you get 50,000 surviving bias too, because if you, if that's what you do, if you get red cells right now, we're not going to do FFP until they're really quite a half then if they don't survive and don't fight with it, then they don't survive and get the rental. It's over like ratio of that because it'll be the fat. So trying to deal with all that statistically, um see there's still a suggestion of one 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 that's all playlist is a good thing. And this study tried to show this. So this is a study, prospective study of uh plasma playlist in red cells, whereas either one 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 or one one two. Six hundred days really the patients fall trauma centers in North America, expected to have mass transfusions. The, the trauma center wouldn't know a group person was going to be able to and it had that ratio in the And then the primary mortality. And the suggestion here that the mortality was a little lower one one one, but this is not physically different to the twenty four hour period of mortality. Uh, but the comment is not primary outcome. Uh, more patients in one to one lung group, but GDP was asymptomatic, they were experiencing death. Through the yeah, so, some suggestion benefit, and maybe one to one one, and that was supposed to be never going to say it, you know, try to refine that and make better. But, I mean, the basic principle behind this is, what do patients do? They need help. Well, you didn't need the one that Mike was trying to get me to use. Or maybe I'll just use this. Yeah, I think so. Let's try this one. But anyway, so that's the proper study. 
And here's why damage control resuscitation and damage control is just not for operations anymore, but people term this damage control resuscitation, which may go along with damage control uh, operations. Okay. So damage control resuscitation, this is a guideline from the Eastern Association for Surgery Trauma that they recommend that you have a massive transfusion protocol, or, or they would call it damage control resuscitation protocol, uh, which meant trying to get patients as soon as possible the one-to-one-to-one-ish kind of ratio of uh, blood products. You want to target a high ratio of both plasma plates to red cells for resuscitation. And they conditionally recommend transamic acid, and we'll come back to that. So that's the current kind of recommendation. Now, what about taking some of this pre-hospital? Again, some of my uh, colleagues in, in Pittsburgh did a study of pre-hospital air transport in trauma patients uh, in hemorrhagic shock and, and having plasma on the helicopter. Uh, the system already does carry red cells, too. So they were actually getting sort of one-to-one-ish in the pre-hospital arena. Same kind of parameters I mentioned from the rock study of hypotension, tachycardia, uh, typical trauma patients in this area, meanies in the 40s, male, and a lot of blunt trauma. And there was actually a survival advantage for getting this pre-hospital plasma. So the earlier you get them plasma along with red cells, the better than just giving them red cells, at least in this cohort. Now, the interesting thing was around the same time, the Denver group, this is a single center study, came out with what they call the control of major bleeding. It's a trauma trial, a combat trial. You know, if you do any good clinical studies, you got to have a good name for your trial, right? So what better name for a trauma study than the combat trial? Pamper, uh, but... But uh, the combat trial is great. Anyway, but this is ground transport in Denver, similar kind of hemodynamics, FFP versus saline uh, by the coolers, and this is a younger patient population, also male, and less blunt trauma, and they found no difference in terms of mortality, organ failure, composites of all that kind of stuff. Why were these, and this was stopped for fertility. Why are these different? Um, well, transport is one thing, ground versus air. Uh, shorter times, I mean, the ground transport in the city of Denver, they, they have very short transport times as opposed to putting somebody on a helicopter. Uh, and they weren't, and in Denver, they weren't transferred from other hospitals, which is something that commonly happens, uh, in western Pennsylvania and some other places. The younger patients, penetrating trauma, smaller number of patients. So, it's hard to know what to make of this, but certainly it seems like, and it makes sense, the longer you're, in the pre-hospital area, the more impact you're going to have of something like getting red cells and getting FFP before you get to uh, the hospital. Now, what about uh, whole blood? Um, I put the, just the cap up there. Actually, I have a picture of Gear uh, wearing the hat that he made. Um, Couple of things about whole blood. So this was a retrospective study from 10 years ago from Phil Spinella looking at the military use of whole blood. Uh, he looked at a group of patients where 100 of them got whole blood, 254 got component therapy. Uh, in terms of if you look at the components of what the patients actually got, if they got the whole blood, they ended up with less quantity of anticoagulant and other additives, less volume, but same equivalence of FFP, of plasma and a little less of platelets. But they did better. Multivariate analysis of survival, the whole blood group, huge impact upon survival. Uh, but the plasma red cell ratio is also an impact. So, I mean, the, the picture is becoming very clear that you want to try to either give people whole blood if you can do that, and a lot of places are now working on figuring out how to make that possible, or at least try to give them the equivalent of whole blood by giving them FFP along with the plasma of some side, along with the red cells. Uh, single center randomized trial of whole blood versus red cells and plasma, uh, but no differences. But you know, again, it might be a matter of timing. Um, it looked like actually in this 
page, I don't even want to put all the details of the study up here by Brian Cotton, but um, if, you, if you exclude people that had TBI, or just look at people with shock, there seems to be some benefit of whole blood. So it seems to be a good thing. Some questions about that. All right, so let's get into timing. So, sort of a different kind of case here. 23-year-old male, gunshot on the epigastrum. Again, tachycardic hypotensive, distended tendon abdomen. No eczema. Certainly something that you see in the military or you see on, you know, Friday night, somebody's on the way to church and get shot. Um, mind his own business. Mind, oh, always mind his own business. And, and it's always, it, well, it's gotta be more than one dude, cause if, if it's just one dude, then you're kinda wimpy. But it was at least two dudes. <laughs> yeah, those two, lots of dudes. Alright, so here's the question. So while there's still a hole, a name blood vessel, I mean, if it's all just little capillaries that are bleeding, yeah, you can actually put a name to the blood vessel. What's the best fluid cessation strategy to keep the patient alive until you get hemostasis? What's that? Blood? That's good. So, and the notion of what to do with this has, the question anyway, has been around for a long time. Go back to 1918, and Walter B. Cannon said, hemorrhage in the case of shock may not have occurred to a marked degree because blood pressure has been too low and the flow too scant to overcome the obstacle offered by a clot. If the pressure is raised before the surgeon is ready to check any bleeding that may take place, blood that is thoroughly needed may be lost. So he knows a hundred years ago that if somebody's injured and you give them a bunch of fluid before you can actually stop the bleeding, they actually could do worse. They bleed more and you're in big trouble. So the notion's been around. So, and he specifically talks about sort of popping the clot off, which is something that we talk about too. Now, just, I, just a little caveat here, because there have been a whole bunch of uh, lab studies looking at sort of what's been called uncontrolled hemorrhagic shock, and the various models of aortotomies and cutting the tail on a rat and massive liver injuries, and you know, basically, um, you know, having actually done a little of this, this work, depending upon the size of the hole you make, your blood pressure goals, the kind of fluid you give, whether or not you're causing coagulopathy, you can basically find whatever you want. So you gotta take all the lab studies with a grain of salt because you know, unfortunately, I mean, you can control the injury in the animal lab. Patients, who knows? You don't know if it's a small little tear in the aorta versus uh, a transected splenic artery versus just some venous bleeding from the liver. So you don't know what it is. But you do know it looks like the patient's got uncontrolled hemorrhage because you're giving them fluid and they're not getting better. And certainly if you have penetrating trauma, like the example that I just showed you, more likely there's a hole in something that's not going to stop us to do something about it than blunt trauma where, you know, oftentimes the bleeding will stop and it's more venous and it might just be the liver injured, something like that. So what do we know from clinical studies of this uncontrolled hemorrhagic shock? Well, the first clinical study that was done, this uh, Bickle study done in Houston, almost 600 patients, penetrating torso injuries, they were hypotensive, and they call this implied consent. I think that implies that if you consent to get shot in Houston, you consent to be a research subject. <laughs> and they randomized them by odd or even days of the month, and they either got standard ATLS, which goes back to the dogma I showed you. They got Winger's lactate, and maybe they got blood, blah, 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 or they got nothing. They got an IV placed and nothing until they got to the hospital. Very radical idea at the time, at least. <clears throat> but the interesting thing was, in fact, the patients who got the delayed resuscitation, they ended up getting some fluid, but they did better statistically. That allowed them to get this in the New England Journal um, than the patients who got immediate resuscitation. And there's some differences in length of stay, blah, blah, blah. But the most important thing is they certainly didn't do worse. There are lots of little issues with the study we don't have to go into, but but they appear to maybe do better. So it makes sense. It goes back to Cannon's idea that you don't want to pop the clot off, you just want to get them to the operating room. <clears throat> oh, what they had in the field? Yeah. Uh, some crystal, I don't know whether it's saline, it's probably saline, or it could have been LR, I can't remember. Might have been LR. Don't know. We don't know. 
I mean, there are other issues like like the the average time to get an operating room is like 45 minutes, which is not at all like standard in any trauma center these days. So there are other issues with the study. And when they actually got to the operating room, the blood pressures were a lot different. But they did better if they didn't get the fluid up front. But of course, we did a study here. Well, not we, but we in the world, the shock trauma world, did a study of both blunt and penetrating trauma patients, systolic less than 90, with what was felt to be ongoing hemorrhage, just a Rick Dutton study. And this is, so this is actually controlling what you do in the hospital, as opposed to pre-hospital, which is the Houston study. Not as many patients, 55, 55, and the goal was either get a systolic of 100 or 70 until they got control of bleeding. But actually, the pressures weren't all that different by the time they were actually in the operating room. The predicted survival was over 90%. The actual survival was over 90%. So it's, the problem with this study was it got diluted by people who really weren't all that sick, which is part of why I commented earlier that a systolic less than 90 is a terrible signal uh, parameter to suspect somebody's actually actively bleeding. So this didn't show any difference in outcome. Uh, what about the sort of controlling how much crystal you give? So this is another rock study. Uh, it was led by Marty Shriver. It was more of a feasibility study of kind of avoiding a lot of fluid in trauma patients. So cystic less than 90 without TBI. And well, I put it up here because it's kind of interesting as well as how we did it because the medics uh, had a goal of either getting systolic over 110 or just keeping a pulse or systolic over 70. And they would have these blinded boxes. And if they opened the box and it had a couple of liter bags of fluid, that, that was in the larger fluid group. If it had a 250cc bag of fluid and a water bottle, the water bottle being for the medics to drink, because then, then the, the boxes weighed the same, so they had no idea what was going in until they opened it. Uh, and so it basically handicapped them to keep them from giving a lot of fluid because they had to do these little bags of fluid rather than a big bag of saline. But basically it showed that it is possible to do a study like that. There actually was a significant difference in fluid that they got. Blunt trauma, the suggestion of uh, better early mortality, uh, but late mortality was really uh, about the same between the groups, nothing statistically different. Uh, but it was meant as a safety feasibility study. It was, seems a bit safe, seems like it's feasible. The problem is nobody's willing to pay for a large multi-center trial of this at this point. But I think we're all kind of coming out to knocking with Crystal anyway, so maybe a moot point. So I know somebody's putting a hand up in the background. All right, so what should I do with a patient I think is uncontrolled hemorrhage? So my thoughts. Keep the patient alive. Um, keep the salt, I don't know, 80, 90, and I'm basing that a bit on the previous clinical studies as well as lab studies. But there are a lot of questions that we still don't really know about this idea of this hypotensive resuscitation because what if it's a prolonged transport? What if it's somebody that's elderly and has heart disease or, or cerebral vascular disease? What if the patient has TBI? So I don't know. And I put this up here because it was a pretty interesting study from L.A. of... Um, patients who were, were dropped off at the hospital by, by their friends, <laughs> friends, or brought by ambulance, and the patients that were dropped off actually did better than the people brought in by ambulance. Um, so maybe doing nothing or very little on the field is a good thing, and you just gotta drive fast. Just a couple quick comments on rapid fusion. This is Poissil, who came up with this law. And just to keep in mind, if you're trying to get a whole bunch of fluid in somebody quickly, you need big IVs, you know, can, uh, introducers in the patient, you need big tubing, um, and it helps to keep the fluid warm, so you have various warmers around. Complications of master transfusions? Trolley. Trolley. Hmm? Trolley and taco. All right. So you got coagulopathy if you're not giving the other stuff. You got electrolytes, hypothermia, acidosis, and trolley, and taco. Okay, so somebody's need massive transfusions, but like a lot of things, you got to be careful as you do it. What about pressors inotropes? So patients who have found him by a shock do get some level of, of vasoplegia, often come out of the operating room on some pressors or inotropes. And I throw this out just because it came out very recently. We just talked about it in Journal Club last week with the surgical fellows. Uh, this is a randomized trial. It, Pen, 
of trauma patients who were given either a little bit of vasopressin or nothing after they've already gotten six units of red cells. And the interesting thing was the patients who got the vasopressin ended up getting a little bit less of blood products, red cells, FFP, and a fewer DBTs, whatever that means. Mortality didn't change. I don't know what this means. It suggests that giving a little pressure isn't a bad thing. Is vasopressin better than norepinephrine or something else? We have no idea. Just tossing it out there that there's probably a role somewhere in there and how to define it is difficult to do, but we'll see. Okay. As I said, you got to fix the patient. So it means giving them blood. It also means stop them bleeding. Got to put Rob Lowe up there. Um, but uh, if you're not aware of Stop the Bleed program, the idea of teaching the public how to stop external bleeding, uh, and I mean, external, people should not die from external hemorrhage. You can put the, put dry pressure on it, put a tourniquet on it, put packet, whatever you can do. You should have to stop external, or junctional is a little more of a challenge, uh, but you should be able to stop it. So the issue for us is more of the non-compressible bleeding that's in the thorax, in the abdomen, and so we've got ways to try to do, deal with that, like pelvic binders for the pelvis. We've got Reboa, and um, any of you who were at Dr. Scalia's talk yesterday, and endovascular stuff, Reboa, which we use in the hospital here, has been taken in the field. This is the London Air Ambulance Group uh, training to use Reboa in the field, which they've done a number of times. They also, uh, well, um, they've also opened chest in the field, so... Yeah, if you take the, the medical team to the patient, maybe you can do better than waiting for the patient to get to us. Pelvic binders. But you gotta operate. And so the question is, where do people hide the, the, uh, the blood? Um, they remember, where, where's the beef? This was Wendy's, it has from many years ago. So where do the people hide the blood? Only like four real places, right? The chest, the abdomen, pelvis. Long bones. It's not that. What's that? The floor. And the floor. That's not hidden, though. Well, it may not be known. It, it might be on the street. Yes. yes, that's true. But that's what. It, so the patient in the operating room, and you're operating on them, and they're in profound shock. We deal with the issue of the triad of death of hypothermia and acidosis and coagulopathy, and because of that, trauma surgeons have learned to use to damage control. This is. Not a trauma damage control procedure. This is the USS Cole after it had been <laughs> blasted. This is the Navy's form of damage control. Uh, but that's where the surgeons have gotten the term. So damage control and surgery, at least, control the bleeding and the contamination in the OR, get out of the operating room, get the patient to the ICU, resuscitate them, and then go back to fight another day. Okay. Questions so far? All right, so... Patient gets to the ICU, and what are our endpoints? I'm just going to touch very briefly on coagulopathy of trauma because it's way too complicated for me. And but there are all kinds of things that play into why patients are coagulopathic after trauma. This is John Hess's diagram of all the things that play into the coagulopathy. Some of which we can control, a lot of which we can't. Uh, so it's, it's quite complicated. But I think you know, we've come around to using tags and rotems, you know, viscoelastic, viscoelastic testing as a way to kind of look at the whole clotting system to be able to, to treat it and try and fix it in the trauma world. Uh, and the other thing that's been interesting is work out of Denver uh, looking at the whole issue of fibrinolysis. And basically, if you have normal, like a little bit of fibrinolysis, that's good. If you don't have any at all and shut down, that's kind of bad. But it's really bad if you're hyperfibrinolytic. And we don't necessarily know what we can do with these patients, but the hyperfibrinolytic, we do have uh, medications like tranexamic acid, which blocks the conversion of plasminogen to plasmin. Uh, and this is the CRASH-2 study, which kind of started this whole tranexamic acid uh, excitement, which is still going. We still don't really know exactly where or when we should be using it. Um, but this is, you know, a study of 20,000 patients in a gazillion countries and many of them um, in the third world, some in more developed worlds. So it's hard to know what this means for somebody that's injured in the city of Baltimore. Uh, but certainly, if you have evidence of fibrinolysis by your TEG, probably should do something about it. Whether or not to do it empirically is a question that continues to come up. Just to show you how 
the effect of transesophageal acid falls off if you wait too long. So three hours is kind of a magic time frame, at least based on the CRASH-2 study. There's some, there's some more studies. I just want to get into all the details of what's going on with transesophageal acid, but just, you know, it's out there. The other thing that was really exciting for a little while and didn't pan out to be is giving activated factor 7. Um, this is a multi-center trial of, of factor 7A versus placebo and showing really kind of a little bit of difference in FFP administration, but no difference in massive transfusions or outcomes statistically different in terms of survival. So that's kind of gone out of our repertoire too. All right, I think this is my last question. What is the best test to ensure adequacy of fluid resuscitation? Oh, somebody wants to touch the patients. I like it. Good. Lactate. <laughs> Everybody loves lactate. Ultrasound. Okay. Good. Oh, well, yeah, lactate's up there. But physical exam. Hey, I like it. It's cheap. It's easy. It's reproducible. It's, re it's re you, know, you can keep doing it. Uh, but the second one is lactate. All right. That's good. So let's talk about some possible um, measures we can do. The key thing is one size does not fit all. Um, so kind of coming back to early on when we're talking about determining that somebody's sick, the standard stuff we look at, blood pressure, heart rate, urine output, isn't always the be-all and end-all. It doesn't give you the answers. So we, we pretty well show that it's not enough. You got to do something more. So I'm just going to kind of run through these various ones. Global markers like hemodynamic monitoring, metabolic acidosis, some regional markers, and functional hemodynamic monitoring, and just a little bit on each one of these. Um, and along the way, in the next, like five, less than five minutes, I'm going to talk about the people who started the Society of Critical Care Medicine, because there are three of them, and I'm going to show them all to you. Hal Weil, Bill Shoemaker, Peter Saffer, and all that's something to do with some of this stuff. So supernormal oxygen delivery, this is Shoemaker's work showing that patients who survived big operations and trauma had higher levels of cardiac index O2 delivery or O2 consumption than those who didn't survive, which kind of makes sense. But then we try to make everybody have those survivor numbers, so everybody got PA catheters, which is great as a fellow. I don't know how many PA catheters we put in, but it's a lot. And then you flood them with fluid to reach these numbers, and then they all got, like, the Michelin Tire Man, and nobody was really able to reproduce Shoemaker's stuff. But it did lead to flooding a lot of patients for a long time. But that's kind of out. Lactate probably is one of the best. It's simple. It's easy. You can re you can repeat it. This is a, a study from a few years ago looking at clearance of lactate just in the first six hours uh, after admission. And if you uh, and this is the, this first uh, graph is just the initial lactate level. But you higher your lactate level, which is down here is the highest one, the worst your survival. But if you look at when patients clear, if you clear less than thirty percent. In the first six hours, you're gonna, these patients are gonna die. So that lactate clearance is really an important parameter. If you're not clearing it, you gotta figure out, is the patient still bleeding? Do I need to give them more blood? What do I need to do? So that's become pretty standard. It's pretty easy. Everybody can do it. So, tonometry. This is the historical, uh, thing. This is a gastric tonometer. If you, if a tissue is ischemic, CO2 increase in that tissue. If you can measure that CO2, that could be a useful endpoint. So the gastrotonometer is an NG2 with a semi-permeable balloon here, and you could actually measure the CO2 that's in your gastric mucosa. And if your stomach, as you said early on, is ischemic, even though the rest of you is not too bad, that could be sort of like the canary in the coal mine telling you there's a problem. Uh, back to many, many years ago when I was a fellow, we put a lot of these things in too. Um, they didn't really do much good. And you can look at the CO2 in the stomach. But how while came up with this sublingual CO2 measure that could do it easily, a stick in the mouth like a temperature probe. Uh, apparently these are not made anymore because of some contamination issues, but they work pretty well. Um, and in fact, uh, there's a study looking at blood loss groups, none, minimum, moderate, severe, and the sublingual CO2 goes up and up and up. So it's not a bad marker. could be good, but we don't have it available. At the moment, will, will, will we have it? I have microcirculation. I was gonna. I thought about bringing the microcirculation. I couldn't find a good slide for it. So you could go microcirculation. Yeah, microcirculation is another opportunity there for looking at it. So, 
Um, and, and in fact, the supplemental CO2 did as well better than base deficit or lactate um, in detecting badness. But yeah, I was trying to find a good picture to show the supplemental microcirculation. We'll get there. Neonfarous spectroscopy looks at tissue O2 and CO2. Again, another technology that kind of hasn't really taken off, but uh, and part of it, these is it's regional, doesn't tell you about the whole body. So whole body stuff, you can look at passive leg raising, um, but that's kind of hard to do in trauma patients because usually they're immobilized, but it can, you can do that, look at the, see if the volume responsive. And, you know, the other, uh, I would say lactate's kind of key in these days, but ultrasound is what we tend to use a lot of, tell you the patient's full, if they're not full, they're going to be volume responsive. So that's probably one of the best parameters. We also use arterial pulse waveform analysis, uh, which has its caveats and its issues, issues in terms of comparing to PA catheters and ultrasound, but it's not, not a terrible thing. It could be useful to you, particularly if you have this on somebody that lifts their legs up and you see if the SVD goes down and the stroke volume goes up. Uh, so you shouldn't poo-poo them. There's a recent uh, EAST guideline for endpoints in trauma patients because uh, the former guideline pushed... Um, uh, looking at lactate-based deficit, not using necessarily swans or other stuff, but now adding the focus ultrasound or waveform analysis. Uh, but very, because the data is terrible, and uh, conditional recommendations for fluid responsiveness, organ failure, complications, or death. Um, you know, so I think that the answer is probably lactate and, and echo, probably the best things we got at the moment. But anyone in doubt, actually touching the patient is still a good thing to do. All right, I'll spend two minutes on future things, and then we'll end on this. So one other area for full resuscitation that's been a hot topic for many years but hasn't panned out yet is the idea of a hemoglobin-based oxygen carriers that can, you know, get into the old capillaries and get beyond where red cells go. Uh, here's just a, a table of the various kinds of uh, products that are around. Uh, but the problems with these solutions are... Uh, pretty early on, they cause renal toxicity, you can have anaphylaxis, they do cause vasoconstriction, and pulmonary vasoconstriction is one of the thoughts of why some of them has really failed or actually maybe killed people in the trauma world. Short half-life, oxygen affinity should be, you know, trying to get the hemoglobin after normal hemoglobin. So there's diaspin cross-linked hemoglobin that uh, went down in a blaze of glory when the patients who got it died faster than people who didn't get it. And then there was uh, Northfield's polyheme that went to a randomized multi-tenor trial, did not show benefit, and the company liquidated. So the one thing I can tell you about these solutions is it would be great maybe to do some research on them. I would not invest in any company that's doing it right now because you will lose your money. But hopefully someday somebody will come up with a way to, to harness hemoglobin like this. And I had to throw in a little bit of hypothermia. Just couldn't help myself. Couldn't help myself. So hypothermia in trauma world, uh, potential benefits, but also cardiopathy and worse outcomes for patients who do get hypothermic. It's really, 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 really easy in, in the lab to show that if you put an animal in the hemorrhagic shock, if you cool them, they do better. And this is just one study uh, of pigs where, you know, if we cool them down just with surface cooling and a little cool fluid, they did better than if, if you give them an ice cold fluid with a hemorrhagic shock, they kind of just died. So that didn't work out too well. But it's really easy to cool them a little bit, and they do better. Lots of animal studies showing this. But that's hemorrhagic shock. What about the patient in cardiac arrest? And this is a diagram of our emergency preservation or resuscitation notion of, you know, patient exsanguinating the point of arrest and cooling them down with aortic flush, getting down very cold. We're talking like 10 to 15 degrees centigrade brain temperature, getting the bleeding controlled, and then using full bypass for resuscitation. Nice little diagram of putting an aortic cannula in, just like sanguinating from the right atrium, getting them cold, take up the OR, and this is a study that we are doing here at the Shock Trauma Center. So, how do we put all this together? Alright? So, in the field, don't give them too much blood, it's still bleeding. But if you're going to give them some fluid, if you can give them blood, that's probably the best thing you can do. Not give them a lot of crystalloid. If you've got external bleeding, you should be able to stop it. If it's internal bleeding, maybe you can do things like a pelvic liner or rubella to 
staunch the hemorrhage wire getting somewhere else. Once you're in the operating room, okay, you got the bleeding controlled. Have we given one to one to one? Good question. Uh, or whole blood. And then in terms of uh, uh, endpoint, we're looking at lactate, make sure we're heading in the right direction. And now we get to the ICU, and I had to throw Peter Saffer in here. There's a picture of Saffer in the intensive care unit. He was the first to have a surgical intensive care unit in this country, uh, actually Baltimore City Hospital, which is now Bayview. And so I'm imagining Saffer, I'm not sure who this was, but now the patient's in the ICU, so we're getting a tag, make sure we've gotten the hemostasis and the cryopathy managed, and... You know, let's get an echo to really get a good, so it's kind of putting it all together in terms of when we should give them fluids, how, when we should operate on them, um, and what kind of endpoints we should look at as we're moving forward. So, again, back to my short message. Fix the patient. Stop the bleeding, give them blood, and they'll do better. Great, thanks. <laughs> Happy to answer your questions. And Mike's got the, a mic that works. You got something. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Microcirculation. <laughs> no, yeah. Opportunity, research opportunity. Um, I think one, one important thing about the proper trial is that they actually was buried in the supplemental appendix, which we pointed out in a letter to the editor, is the platelets first strategy. And the way I think about it, because I mean, in the MICU, we deal with a lot of GI bleeds, um, you know, in, in our patient population, as you can imagine. And, um, you know, I always compare to, you know, make the, uh, description to our, my trainees that, you know, you have a coffee cup. If I poke a hole in the bottom of the coffee cup, coffee's gonna keep, you know, draining, but that concentration of the coffee is still gonna be the same. So, and, and, um, so again, it's not so much the CBCs that matters, it's the, those functional assessments of uh, bleed, whether it be tag on how to mm. resuscitate from a product standpoint or the, and lactate from a, like a red cell. I guess clotting standpoint and then red cell standpoint. But, and beyond just, uh, stopping the, the bleed mechanically, you know, that what you're describing, so with the platelet first strategy and FFP first, and depending on pamper, is you have to first establish the, the, the right, clot. have the right stuff within the, uh, vessels themselves in order to establish that clot for the red cells and then push it to the periphery. Um, you know, and talking, so I used to walk to work with, uh, John Hess, like from, like, during my training and oh. who's big in blood trans, basically transfusion medicine. And the importance of red cells with bleeding is that be, rheologically they stay in the middle of the of the uh, vessels, and so push the clotting factors and platelets to the periphery of the within the vessels. And so, you know, you bleed in the from the periphery. I mean, we're constantly bleeding intraluminally, hopefully. Uh, but it's when you we <laughs> have that rented wide open, the vessels bleed. You bleed, and that's where you need those platelets and uh, FFP. So a lot of True. information I just thrown out there. But, but the reality of the red cells too is important though. Because the more, because if you, even if you have plasma around and platelets, if you have hemoglobin three, the viscosity of that blood is going to be different than if your hemoglobin is ten. So the red cells themselves also help with getting the blood to clot and stop. So you, you do kind of need everything. But but the coffee cup's easy. Put your finger on it and, and don't lose the coffee. <laughs> I will repeat the question. Right. So for it to be a, you know, if you have a MICU patient bleeding from a GI bleed and has been bleeding for 12 hours, TSA will actually increase those. Right, because then you get your, right, so that's, that's, I, the, the graphic shows like you get to around, equivalents around three hours and six hours they do worse. And, and that's why I think in, in trauma, we kind of, the use of TXA has come around to testing for it first. Because if you have somebody that's hyperfibrinolytic and you give it, you may actually do worse. And giving to everybody probably doesn't make sense these days. Um, 
and, right. But I just wanted to. No, that's a valid point. Doing it as much later as possible. But I think actually, you actually brought up a point that I was going to make too. Of keeping in mind that hemorrhagic shock is hemorrhagic shock, and if it's in the MICU because of a massive GI bleeder, or it's in the TRU with a trauma patient, or it's in the SICU with a liver transplant patient. The same principles really apply in terms of managing that shock and getting factors and platelets and everything else as well as giving the blood and also the fact that if they are bleeding that much, you got to do something to stop the bleeding, which trauma surgeons recognize quickly. Um, other, you know, like gastroenterologists, and gastroenterologists in the room don't necessarily recognize that you can't necessarily fix somebody's hemodynamics and their clotting stuff until you get some control of the bleeding. It doesn't work the other way around. Well, it's, it's tough also from a GI bleed standpoint because many times the blood that comes out is old news. So you don't know what's Well, that's real. the other thing, too. And again, it goes back to the importance, I believe, like TAG, you know, whether it's TXA, which I mean, I haven't used in GI bleed, but TAG or, um, you know, lactate, which is a more real-time assessment. But, but yeah. our approach to GI bleed is exactly the opposite of Right, and that's, that's exactly my point. GI doesn't get it. The source control issue is an issue. I think it depends on like how significant the bleed is, right? Which is how surgeons, at least I'm studying for my oral board, so it's about how the human status of the patient is how we manage bleed, right? So like. In a patient with a massive GI bleed and a blood pressure of 50 who's altered from his hemorrhagic shock, we're going to use the patient around to try and perfuse their brain and hopefully get to an intervention. But if they're slowly oozing and it's, you know, their blood pressure is 90 and their hemoglobin is hovering around 6 or 7 and you can give them product and get them through to a less invasive procedure, then that's better. But it's like, it's hard because it's all dependent on the physical exam and what you're actually looking at in the patient. We should scope these people immediately just to try and isolate the bleed, but it seems like that's not important. I, I think the principles are the exact same. But it should be the same. You said you can't tell whether the bleed, but it's the same thing. I mean, you don't know whether that that aorta is actively pumping right that second inside the body. You know, the aorta tends to always pump, but other, <laughs> but other things, but you don't know if that's what it is until you get in there, right? And you don't know, is it the, the gastroduodenal artery is like wide open bleeding into the duodenum, or is it just some little tear in the stomach or something else that... Right. But you know if there's free fluid in the belly or not, and the change of it, we don't know how much blood is in the intestines necessarily. Right, um, you don't... Right. But in some ways, you, you get delayed because of what's coming out. And then the other side of that is the patient who's actually kind of hemodynamically fine, and somebody panics because there's a whole bunch of blood that comes out of their butt. Um, but it's old blood, so it is, as you say. Um, but I think the but one piece of this still is true that you do have immediately in front of you is how does the patient respond to your resuscitation? And if the patient, you know, you give them a couple units of blood and they use an FFP, and now they're stable-ish, and that, that kind of comes back to the trauma patients that are either responders, transient responders, or non-responders. And still the issue of if they're not responding, they're not going to respond until you stop bleeding. And identifying that patient is key. And then the challenge of getting somebody to do something about it. Maybe if the endovascular trauma people started managing GI bleeds, because the, the endovascular approach is like uh, very useful. We would love that. <laughs> I just offered them to do a lot of work. Right. So having them around would be more beneficial if we're moving more towards the angiography than even colonoscopy because we can never identify or Yeah, colonoscopy you can't see anything. The upper GI you can often do stuff. Right. Colonoscopy you can never do much of anything. Sammy. And how frequently do you check the coads and patient you're actively resuscitating the often oftentimes by the time you have the tech and it's all news if you're gonna need a bunch of both products. Yeah, that's a challenge. I mean, it depends on the patient and your system and where the tech machine is and, and can, can you actually see it? I mean, if you're able to just watch it in real time, you'll know in a few minutes it's not doing anything or it's, you know, looking pretty good. The problem is not everybody in this institution can look at it in real time. But he can within, you know, 10, 10, 15 minutes at least, you'll, you'll see, or even five minutes you'll see it's not doing anything. Um, but the problem is you can't always see it here.
Yeah, I mean, the closer closer to real time assessment you have, what's going on, the better, and that's a, a big problem. The turn, lab turnaround time, frankly, if you're going to use that as a guiding, you know, yeah. of, of your resuscitation. I think the other thing that uh, maybe not from a blood resuscitation hemostasis standpoint, but intubating the time of hemorrhagic shock. That's another important issue that I've seen not so great outcomes a few times over the years. Um, so when you institute, you know, if you do RSI, take away that sympathetic tone. And when you institute positive pressure ventilation, yeah, uh, game over as well. So yeah. um, I've many times uh, delayed my intubation until blood is actively running in and I run in pressors just as a Band-Aid until more blood arrives and we're able to achieve uh, uh, hemostasis or, yeah, hemostasis. No, I think the airway stuff, I think I'm one sort of side yeah. pieces that I didn't want to dive into too much, but I totally yeah. agree with that. I mean, it's probably some of the reason that a lot of studies of pre-hospital trauma intubations have not shown benefit, maybe worse outcomes, because uh, you can definitely make something hemodynamically worse by doing that, and there's very little upside of it yeah. early on. And then when people forget to ramp up the respiratory rate to correct for the metabolic acidosis, is a challenge as well. Part of the problem with intubation is doing it, but also the other piece is what do you do once you're intubated, how do you manage the ventilation, and that can make it detrimental in terms of somebody who's in profound shock. Oh. Cool. Thank you, Sam. Great. Thanks, guys.